You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Jason Mark is the editor of Sierra and author of Satellites in the High Country, Searching for the Wild in the Age of Man. Jason recently returned from Patagonia to report on the official transfer of Tompkins Conservation Lands to the Chilean government to create a combined 9 million acres of fully protected national parks. His recent article in Sierra Magazine lays out what it was like to witness the biggest wildlands philanthropy gift in history in sheer acreage. I started by asking Jason to give a bit of background on his work before we dove into topics ranging from Patagonia, Tompkins Conservation, biodiversity, art, and even space colonization. Yeah, my day job is I'm the, the editor-in-chief of Sierra, which is the national magazine of the Sierra Club. goes out to all Sierra Club members, which I hope some listeners, I would imagine some listeners, are, are members. Um, you know, we come out six times a year in print, and, and we're publishing a, a new story every day online. Um, before that, for many years, for about eight years, I was the editor of a uh, scrappy little environmental quarterly called Earth Island Journal. Um, <laughs> founded by David Brower, um, and uh, so spent many years as a you know kind of journeyman uh, freelance writer, magazine writer, uh, covering almost exclusively environmental topics. Uh, I also wrote uh, a book um, a number of years ago, came out in 2015, called Satellites in the High Country: Searching for the Wild in the Age of Man, which touches deeply. We've got a, I got a whole chapter in there about rewilding, but Satellites in the High Country is it's my effort um, traveling around the big open wild spaces, mostly in the American West and in Alaska, trying to investigate um, whether and how we can keep wildness as a touchstone for our relationship with the rest of nature, especially in what some are calling, you know, the Anthropocene of the age of man. So, you know, if we really do, and I think it's hard to argue with this, if we really do live on a planet in which human civilization has now become an evolutionary force. Um, and we live on a planet that sadly has become so largely domesticated by industrial civilization. It seems to me that wildness and wilderness are, are more important than ever. You know, we will say, well, you know, if we live on a human planet, then wildness and wilderness aren't of that, that much value. But I totally disagree. I think the, the remaining places, the remaining landscapes that are still wild, that are still self-willed, they're actually more important than ever, given that much of the planet has become domesticated. I don't know how many writers you have on staff, but it looks like you have a, an enormous um, publishing schedule there. How do you even, we were talking before the interview about how it's like a fire hose, just all the issues, all the news, all the headlines, all the places, all the things we wish we would read more often or, or people would be in contact more often, but we're all just so busy um, just trying to absorb um, in some fashion that makes sense, all the information there is out there. How do you do that as an editor of a magazine that covers a pretty broad range with all the writers and all the deadlines? It, just give us a little feel for what that's like, because it gives me a Huffington Post feel, like a really big operation. Yeah. I know what goes into some of this, and I know it's a lot of hard work, but you have a frontline view of it. it, it well, when I get the chance now and then to talk to 
earlier early career journalists or you know at Sierra Magazine we in addition to our uh, full time staff we do have three editorial fellows who are usually you know young folks who are just cutting their teeth in journalism and the bad news is that uh, we're in the midst of obviously a number of cascading ecological crises. The good news is if you're an environmental reporter, there's no shortage of stories out there. Um, this is a way of saying that, yeah, for us at Sierra Magazine, it's always a challenge to keep up with the broad range of different environmental issues that we're covering. So if, if again, listeners know us, know Sierra Magazine, we're not just not just covering issues that the Sierra Club is working on, even though the Sierra Club's got a pretty broad portfolio. We're trying to touch on any topics and issues that we think would be of interest to uh, an, an environmental audience kind of, you know, writ large, whether people are, you know, hardcore activists or, or what I would call sort of the environmentally curious and are just sort of now waking up to these issues. So that means, yeah, I mean, we're obviously covering climate and energy. We're covering lands, waters, and wildlife covering public health issues, you know, uh, around things like, you know, the class of chemicals called PFAS or neonicotinoids or other um, issues around chemicals in the environment. We're covering, uh, you know, drinking water, things like Flint, Michigan. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're covering really the, the whole game. And then, and then, of course, I should say, uh, you know, personal lifestyle and responsibility stuff, which is really, you know, we, a lot of readers are coming to us just for basic tips and hints on how to have a slightly smaller footprint and to, and to live um, a little more lightly on this planet. So it's a, it's a, it's a challenge to keep up with it all. And what we try to do is as best as possible at Sierra magazine is to, to kind of use an outdoors person's metaphor. We're trying to be a little bit of the, the map and the compass um, for again, people who are environmentally curious to so provide a little bit of um, uh, some basic navigation skills on navigating uh, this, this fraught environmental age. So we're trying to explain the news as much as possible, right? So like if a, you know, a big hurricane uh, comes through, we're not going to necessarily do the blow by blow coverage like a daily newspaper, but try to step back from the headlines and, and to put say a, major out of control wildfire or a hurricane or one of these other unnatural disasters into context or similarly help people uh, um, sort of understand via storytelling, understand sometimes complicated conservation and environmental issues. And then somehow you have to find time to write articles um, like you did uh, <laughs> in Patagonia. Did you actually travel? This was, this was a trip for you, right? It was. This was kind of a, a, you know, a little bit of a, a bucket list sort of reporting uh, assignment. So yeah, I, I try to keep a toe in the water, not just um, as an editor, but again, as I said, I'm you know writer and author. So I, I like to be out in the field. I wish I were out in the field um, more, getting really out in the landscape. I mean, my passion, one of my passions is what I call landscape-level journalism. Actually going out to a place, making the landscape into a character, right? The land itself or the waters themselves as characters, bringing that to life for our readers and hopefully sparking in readers um, some sort of passion or affection or affinity for those wild places. So I was super lucky to um, last February, which of course is summertime in Chile, is summertime in Patagonia. I was very lucky to get to go to Chile for a couple of weeks um, and to tour the 
amazing landscapes that were assembled by Chris and Doug Tompkins over a 25-year marriage. I didn't miss that little sub point in there in their uh, second sentence in the interview. It was 8.15 on a summer morning in February. You don't get much farther afield than that. I was like, huh? Exactly he, right. He did something wrong here. There's, oh, yeah, it's that far away. So before we get to that, because the article starts right there, but I think people would be really interested in, in, in shedding a little bit of light on just what it takes to actually get to Patagonia from the States. Like what, <laughs> that is no small trip. You're not just doing a little commute. It is, um, in some ways, when you, especially when you get down to the far southern beaches of Chile, you're, you're really, it's the ends of the earth. Um, you know, Patagonia was, was one of the, was the last place that humans arrived in the Americas, right? After the long migration, um, you know, uh, over, uh, you know, from Asia into, into the Americas. And it's, you know, as I say one point in the article, in Patagonia, isolation endures. I mean, there, there's no jet traffic there. You don't, you're out on the landscape and, and you're fortunate enough not to hear a jet roar or to see a contrail. And so it took to get down to real southern Patagonia. It takes a good, took me a good couple of days from California. First flying to Santiago, Chile, um, and then from Santiago, a second flight uh, down to the city of Puerto Montt. And from there, I then actually went in Tompkins Conservation's private plane um, out to Chaiten, um, and what is now called uh, Doug Tompkins Kumaline National Park. And then to get all the way down to Patagonia National Park was another day. And once you get there, then it was a full day uh, in a pickup truck. Um, and you're only, I don't know, maybe a hundred kilometers, uh, south on what Chileans call the Southern highway, the Carretera Astral, um, when that turns from, from blacktop into, uh, into a basically washboarded dirt and gravel road. So it is, it's, it's remote. Um, and you're out in a place where, you know, still humans are outnumbered by, only by livestock, but probably also had numbered by uh, by wild critters. Um, so it's a remote place. Yeah, I just wanted to give that a little bit of space because anybody who reports back from Patagonia, it's so easy to start an article and go, "Oh, this is really interesting." But I mean, there, there were some great things, um, great efforts put forth too for everyone who goes down there. Our director John Davis was down there not too long ago and um, talked a lot about um, the adventure in just getting to where. Uh, the news technically started, which is the things that he was going to cover and the networking that he was going to do and everything. So it's no, no small feat. So um, that brings us to the article. Um, it's been a really, really big uh, last few years for Tompkins Conservation. Tell us a little bit about um, what it was like being there at this, this moment uh, in time. So many of us who are, who are keyed in on this stuff had been hearing about it for quite a long time and knew the land was protected anyway because it was in, you know, Tompkins Holdings. Um, but this handover was always imminent, right, to the government. And uh, it was a really big official thing that happened in so many years in the making. The dream of, of those two guys um, exclusively really just uh, hammering that home. And it finally got there. What was it like? Yeah, so, you know, it was in January of 2017 that, Chris Tompkins and, and then Chilean President Michelle Bachelet signed the agreement under which Tompkins Conservation would hand over to the Chilean government, to the Chilean people, this, you know, in, incredible uh, 
crown of properties that Chris and Doug Tompkins had assembled. And I uh, was either lucky or had some small amount of, of foresight to, to actually time my reporting trip just at this really interesting kind of tipping point in which Tompkins Conservation was, was sprinting to finalize the last details of the handover um, in anticipation of the agreed upon April 2019 uh, official handover. So I was there, I mean, literally, you know, everybody was, was scrambling at, at Kumaline National Park, at Patagonia National Park. It was about kind of putting the last bow in place as um, this gift was, was going to be finalized. And I should say, you know, in print, the, the, the title of the article is just simply The Gift. Right. Because that is, I think, the heart of this story, this, the incredible generosity on the part of Chris and Doug Tompkins um, to do this. What's your sense of what nine million acres means down there? You mentioned that humans are outnumbered by critters. That's most certainly true. Um, the biodiversity there is, is singular. There's nothing else in the world remotely like it. <laughs> um, and, you know, nine million acres in other places might mean something. But what? Can you even, I mean, how long did it take you to get your head around that number of the kinds of acres that we're talking about in this area? Here's the way I think of it. Nine million acres is Yellowstone Park, plus Yosemite National Park, then squared, right? So <sighs> it, it's a lot. Um, and, you know, you're talking in total, you're talking a couple of, couple of three, I guess, you know, states of Delaware. I, mean, I think what's interesting about this story, right, and it's a little detail that some people kind of miss, but what's so interesting about the con- Tompkins conservation model is that they leverage their own generosity into something greater. So the total amount of acres, you know, they gifted to uh, the, the Chilean government um, is like, you know, one million and change. I, I don't want to get this wrong. I think it's like 1.2 million acres in the final gift. Well, the Chilean government then sort of matched and exceeded that by um, either expanding a number of existing national parks or increasing and, and, and sort of upgrading the, the uh, conservation, what we call it, category or designation. They took a bunch of reserves and turned them into national parks. Um, so that's so interesting, right? That that was always kind of part of Doug Tompkins' idea is how, how to leverage what he and Chris had done um, and to do even more. So 9 million acres, I mean, it's such a broad, diverse, I mean, you've got temperate rainforest up around Kumali National Park. You've got the, the broad kind of Andean steppe or Patagonian steppe, which is right, this kind of semi-arid grassland. Um, and then there are, there's a lot of island holdings there, right? So then you also have a lot of the kind of, you know, marine terrestrial ecotone um, out there in the Chilean archipelago. So this is just a broad diversity of landscapes. It's, it's amazing. I like your little laundry list of uh, everything that was donated that probably would not be covered in any other article, like um, 11 outbuildings, 200 shovels, one museum, five dozen chainsaws, and just the list goes on. Uh, 740 works of fine art. I don't even know how that fits. We have to find out about that from you. Uh, 16 telephones, and then 725,000 acres to establish Fulin National Park, and another 206,000 acres to create Patagonia National Park in the remote south of the country. Um, but 200 shovels and chainsaws, and I mean, 
they really had to just turn over a lot of the stuff that they were using to work on the land all of these years. Um, and I'm sure gladly, but tell us a little bit more about that and try to fit in the 740 works of fine art. <laughs> I mean, what's so interesting about the Tompkins conservation donations, and I should say not just in Chilean Patagonia, but also in Argentine Patagonia, right. Argentine Patagonia, where, uh, you know, a lot of incredible work happening, it, 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 especially at Yendagaya and especially in the realm of rewilding where Tompkins brought back uh, uh, the anteater, the giant anteater, and then puma and, and some other species. But just talking about Chile, in both Kumalin National Park and Patagonia National Park, Doug Tompkins had built, had not only bought the land to conserve it, but had built out fully functioning park amenities like you would expect at any national park in the United States. So trail networks, signed trail networks, interpretive signage, scientific signage, campgrounds, lodges, cafes, et cetera, and, and, and ditto it at Patagonia. Um, and so it's not just the handover of land, which in itself is, is so impressive, um, but you know, you've seen that in other places, right? You can think about the history of wildland philanthropy here in the U.S., creation of Acadia National Park, um, uh, Grand Teton, uh, Muir Woods National Monument outside of San Francisco. Those were all, right, private land mm-hmm. donations. But what's so cool about the Tompkins story is they donated, like, these fully functioning parks with, like, visitor centers. You know, that's the museum I refer to as this incredible interpretive museum uh, at, at Patagonia National Park. So it's like this whole kind of turnkey operation um, that they gifted. It really is amazing. It can't be overstated. It is the largest wildlands, uh, active wildlands philanthropy in history, as you say. Um, and it truly, yeah. truly is. I mean, and uh, th- this probably is a good place to bridge to an article, I think you uh, a snippet more, um, that you put up on the same day called One Percenters for the Planet. I mean, I think people should be thinking right now, um, maybe in lines of, of uh, what you heard Doug Tompkins always said. Can you talk about that? Sure. So that's actually, it's just the, in the September-October edition of, of Sierra, it's the, it's the editorial. Um, and ah, it's okay. one, percenters for the, one percenters for the planet. Question mark. Yes. In order to halt and then hopefully reverse the extinction crisis, we're going to have to see government action, right? There's no substitute for that. If we're going to meet the goal of half Earth and protecting, you know, half of Earth's land and waters um, in an essentially wild state by mid-century, and the goal, right, that's been adopted by the Sierra Club and many other organizations of trying to reach a 30% goal, right, so 30% of the world's lands and waters protected by 2030, if we're going to hit that goal, right, we need government action. No question about that. And at the same time, we will need private action. Um, some, right, on the part of advocacy groups, but some of it on the part of private individuals, like the Tompkins, who uh, will need to, some of which already is happening, but we'll need to fund and help fund preservation of other lands, right, that might not be in the public lands portfolio. Um, and so I think that's what's so, in some ways, inspiring about Chris and Doug's Work. You know, there was this guy that I spent a day with, one of their employees in Patagonia National Park, and we were driving around the park, and he took me out um, to meet with one of the guys that's doing rewilding 
work there of the uh, of the endemic waymole deer. And he said, this again is a Tompkins conservation employee, he said, you know, most people, if they're philanthropists, they tithe, right? They give like 10% of their wealth away. He said, Doug and Chris, they reverse tithe. They gave, they saved for themselves and their family 10% and they gave away the other 90%. And as many folks who I talked to in the Tompkins orbit shared with me stories of Doug often saying with, I think a bit of undisguised kind of frustration and perhaps even resentment. Why don't more people do this, right? Why don't more people of means behave more generously with the, the vast amount of wealth they have? And I think that's the question I would pose um, to the wealthy uh, among us, which is, why don't you do something like Doug and Chris did? Probably not that scale, but Perhaps there's some local watershed that's at risk. There's some small patch of woods, um, and it doesn't again need to be a million acres, but even if it's 100 acres or 1,000 acres, to purchase that, to put it into a permanent conservancy um, is an incredible bequest to the future. Um, and I think that question is, is totally a fair one. Yeah, I mean, there are other people like Doug and Chris. There's the Vies Foundation, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then Vies, uh, who's a pharmaceutical uh, billionaire, has promised a billion dollars of his money to help conserve wild nature. But unfortunately, that's the exception of the rule. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm here in, like, in the Bay Area, in San Francisco Bay Area, which is just kind of under a tidal wave of wealth due to the, the tech boom. Um, and it's discouraging to see, you know, so many tech billionaires investing their wealth in things like shooting ourselves to Mars uh, or colonizing the moon. Um, while there's so much work, so much important work still to be done here on the home planet. So that was a, use the opportunity that editorial to to um, to offer something of a challenge. I think a challenge that Doug Tompkins set down of. Um, what are you doing with your wealth and can you use it better? Yeah, we're an unusual organization because most of our listeners are idle billionaires who are just looking for their next move. <laughs> so that's why Good. I wanted to have you Good. on. I'm glad. Today. Fantastic. I'm glad. And, and thank you listeners for, for making a pledge today to protect planet Earth. Yeah. I mean, it to me seems like the biggest legacy you can leave. I know that Bezos thinks, um, and, and I'm not trying to denigrate it at all. I mean, you know, if everything else was just fine, it would be wonderful for Jeff to be working on space colonization. But I just keep thinking about, you need a home base for that. You need an intact, stable home base in order to launch all of these um, space things that people want to do. Um, and you need to be planning for that to be going on for hundreds and hundreds of years, which is also, it's a microscopic stretch of time, geologically. Um, you know, but staying within our overinflated self-importance and everything and our longevity, which is not, um, you know, you'd need to be planning for that kind of stuff. So I would say if I were a billionaire, I'd be putting some interest in those kinds of things, but I'd also be making sure that an equal amount at least was going into making sure the base you're going to launch all your operations from was not just technically okay but biologically okay and all the things were stable you would need that as part of your plan to have this big legacy in the first place it seems to me but i'm not a billionaire and i don't know how they think well 
there's all that, and you're exactly right, Jack. And then there's the uh, the other complicating factor of kind of social justice and democracy. It's like, how many people are going to get to live in the moon colony? A couple thousand pops? I mean, there's 8 billion people on the planet. What happens to the rest of us? Um, you know, it, it definitely feels like, oh, I'm going to hop in my private uh, you know, spacecraft and, and jet away and, and leave all y'all <laughs> to figure it out for yourselves. Um, you yeah, know, I, I beachfront property on the moon. I, yeah, and the, and the total uh, grand scheme of things, I think it's still less than 700 humans have slipped the surly bonds of Earth. I mean, it's, you know, there's less than a thousand people in all of humanity who've gone into space. Um, uh, so I, I think, you know, these space colonization fantasies are even worse. They're kind of uh, um, uh, the, the fantasies of, you know, somehow merging humanity with AI. Uh, they still beg the question of, well, what about the rest of us? It's a it's a Greta Thunberg moment, really, in terms of when she comes on TV. She was just on the uh, Daily Show last night, and I stayed up late just to watch it because I love her. She's just so brave to do what yeah. she's doing with everything that she has uh, on paper going against her, though she doesn't seem to be as daunted as you would think someone would be um, by getting up in front of people and everything with her condition. But, man, she is just awesome. And... I, and I look into her eyes as she's describing, you know, um, things that she doesn't want to, talking about things that she doesn't want to, because she really just wants to talk about climate. And she is dead serious. I totally believe that she wants people to panic. She doesn't want everybody to be hopeful. She doesn't want everybody to just, you know, work on moon landings and stuff like that, as if everything on Earth is normal. And she's just trying to wave that flag, uh, as we all are, in our own ways, um, to, to draw attention to the fact that really none of the other things can matter. The social justice, everything goes hand in hand with this because it can't happen without that. Um, but, uh, but, but beyond that, beyond that broad, broad set of, of things to do um, and things that must be done, there really isn't, everything else just ratchets way, way down in importance. And there are people that are walking around thinking that we ought to merge consciousness with computers still indicating that they don't get it yet they really really don't get where we are how do we i mean you've got this giant organization that's pumping out information like crazy about all kinds of different issues um uh, 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 mostly related to this at the core and you're having an effect but is it enough or is there any way that all of us collectively are going to be able to do enough at the end of the day are you on the hope side are you on the neutral part of it or or I know you're not on the other side of it. I know you're on the hope side. I guess I would say this. I think that panic is a reasonable biological response to danger. Um, and I think, uh, you know, or I should say fear is a reasonable response to danger. As some of your listeners who I'm sure again are outdoors people know, uh, you know, when the surprise snowstorm comes or, when you see uh, a possibly venomous snake or when you encounter a possibly aggressive bear or moose or elk, um, fear, danger is a reasonable response. So we should be scared about this moment in time. Humanity is right to be scared um, and right to think have a little bit of panic. The problem with panic, right, again, as any outdoors person knows, is it's not the best survival. Right. <laughs> you don't want to panic when the surprise snowstorm comes or the aggressive 
animal comes. And so I think this is the trick is how do we have, I guess what I would call righteous or productive fear and terror that doesn't become panic. So we've got to keep our heads in this moment. We've got to be able to keep our heads in order to, I think, uh, sustain that hope, um, not, not having to be a false hope, but um, I should say optimism. Um, optimism is not exactly right either, right? Because you can have hope without optimism. But uh, Guarded optimism. So I'm, I, Tim Cromwell. Guarded, guarded, yes. guarded optimism. So I think that's the moment we're in now um, is, yes, we, I, I actually think the fear factor has not gone high enough for much of the population. They're still kind of sleepwalking through this, uh, if not downright dismissing it but right i mean we're already seeing the needle shift when you see things um like last year's campfire incinerating an entire town called paradise when you look at like a, a series of of superstorms, um and you know it's like we keep flipping the coin it keeps coming up the same every time clearly the odds have been kind of thrown off so i i think the evidence is getting you know harder and harder to dismiss and that is ratcheting up um people's anxiety uh and fear and, and again in some ways I think it's a good thing i think that the fear in a way is the precursor to the hope when everything whenever when more people were pretending like everything was cool they knew that sierra was out there they knew that rewilding and all the other conservation groups were out there um and they would occasionally maybe donate um they wouldn't read the whole newsletter they it, it would come um and, but they were mainly just going about their daily lives, which means that they were missing out on all that education that was coming through those channels. Even if they were supporters and subscribers, they were still, um, you know, just whatever, live, whatever living your life means. Um, but not in the, in the, in the shadow of, of this danger that we're experiencing now. But so if they missed out on all that education, they didn't read all the articles. None of us did because there were too many articles, but some of us stayed closer to it. You know, the professionals obviously do. And then uh, other people's, there are degrees, but it seems like the bit, the bulk of the population in the United States, and I'm sure this is somewhat true around the world, kind of thought you guys, you guys were just taking care of this stuff. You were, you were um, suing the right people. You were lobbying and, and doing petitioning and doing actions and all kinds of stuff that were getting, that were taking care of everything. They're not only finding out that, that that's not exactly true. Things weren't getting taken care of. We were just doing the best we could as organizations and everything. And that things have gotten to this state minus that education that they would have gotten if they were able, if they felt they were able or interested to have their ear closer to the ground. How do we get this po this scared population, this ever growing number of humans who are becoming aware of the superficial level of all of these issues? Can they still take meaningful action given that they haven't really been in the conversation as deeply as those of us who are so frustrated that people don't get it on its surface when we just say, when we quote a scientific fact about climate change or whatever, what do you feel about that? I think, uh, well, first of all, it's, all, it's an all hands on deck moment. So that's clear. It's no longer enough to sort of outsource your concern to uh, Sierra Club or Greenpeace or whomever. It's an all hands on deck moment. I also think the door is wide open and the barrier to entry to getting involved in some fashion is, uh, is very low. So everybody can be useful in some way, shape or form. You don't need to, again, be a, a, a 
a policy expert. You don't need, you don't need to have a PhD to care. Um, and so there we need both the personal actions, um, which, you know, again, hopefully in some ways, uh, are pretty straightforward and don't feel like too much of a sacrifice. We need to eat a little less meat. We need to drive less in our cars. We need to, you know, somehow, um, walk more lately on the earth. And at the same time, we need to engage in political actions, which means marching, protesting, um, getting involved in electoral campaigns. Um, so the hour's late, but it's not yet midnight. Um, and so I think at this point, again, if we're in an all hands on deck moment, it's what can you do? And maybe you're just a kindergarten teacher, but you can still say to your principal, listen, our whole class, with as long as we've got parents' consent, our whole class is going to do the climate strike today, and we're walking out. Um, and that's not the same as designing and implementing the Green New Deal, but it's important. So I think there's something for everybody. That's awesome. So what, as far as you're concerned right now, um, today, what would you say if you had the attention of some listeners of a podcast, say, um, that they could do? Um, and, and couch it in terms of what you guys are encouraging people to do at Sierra. What are some of the things that people should be watching out for if they haven't been paying as close attention to the magazine, um, maybe just hearing about it for the first time today? What do you want them to look for so they don't see a giant fire hose pointing back at them? Sure. Well, you, you know, please check us out online, sierramagazine.org. Again, we're, we're publishing one original story every day, coming out six times a year online. If you feel so moved, become a member of the Sierra Club. That way you know that you're going to get the magazine. You also know that you'll be contributing to um, the United States' oldest and largest grassroots environmental organization. And almost no matter where you're listening, if you're in the United States, we've got a chapter or a group near you. So we've got 63 chapters across the country in every state, including Puerto Rico and Guam. Um, and uh, even below the chapter level, many, many groups working on all sorts of environmental issues. So I'd say become a member, you'll get to your magazine. And I would say, just again, look for those opportunities, large or small, to, um, to plug in and to protect, I think, this maybe brings us back to, to rewilding. I think the important thing about the environmental movement is it's always been fueled by a kind of what I'd call righteous parochialism, right? People standing up to defend a, their nearby river, their nearby hill, their nearby seashore. And so if you've got a place that you love, um, know that by going to the climate strike, you're helping to defend and preserve that place. So find the, find the place that you love and then fight like hell to protect it. Anybody who's listening to this right now can go to rewilding.org and find out um, more about all of this, all the resources attached to this podcast here with Jason uh, including links to his recent article, um, Sierra Magazine in general, um, are all somewhere here. So if you're listening on iTunes, thank you very much, but also visit our site at rewilding.org and also go to sierraclub.org and sierramagazine.org to find out more about what Jason's so excited about, and I am too. Uh, you guys do really, really great work, and I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today on the podcast. Thank you, Jack. I really appreciate the opportunity. It was a great conversation. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.